welcome to episode 64 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We are lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm joined today by our guest commentator, Mary DeRosa, former deputy assistant and deputy counsel to the president and the National Security Council legal advisor in the Obama administration. That's three titles, but one job, right? That's right. Okay. <laughs> Many bosses. <laughs> yes. Well, that's the nature of the White House. Uh, uh, they're your boss if they say they are, uh, or maybe not. Uh, uh, currently a distinguished visitor from practice at the Georgetown University Law Center. So welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Uh, and Michael Vadis, uh, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in our New York office. Uh, Michael, uh, got a candidate for Story of the Week? Well, just to make you happy, I'll, I'll say it's all the legislative uh, activity in cybersecurity. There's just a, a whole bunch of stuff which I there, there guess is a we'll lot. Get to. Yeah, let's 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 hold that because that, that that'll be a complicated uh, discussion. Uh, and I want to introduce uh, uh, the long lost Jason Weinstein, uh, uh, formerly with the Justice Department, where he oversaw criminal computer crime prosecutions, among other things, now doing criminal and civil litigation here at Steptoe. Uh, uh, Jason, welcome back, and um, what do you think is the story of the week? Well, Mike and I need to coordinate on these more often, because we we tend to agree on what the story of the week is. I, I also think it's all the legislative activity on the Hill, although I'm skeptical that an actual bill that can actually be signed will come out of it. Could be. I, I, I see they're offering odds now on um, uh, one of the dot govs, uh, the, one of the uh, gov.gov or whatever it is, sites, uh, uh, and uh, they were offering roughly 25 to 30 percent odds that these House bills would get passed, uh, uh, which sounds actually about right. Um, you know, that's that's probably stronger than most bills, but it's not a, a lock by any means. Um, and Does that by- mean three to one? Does that mean three to one that they won't be passed? Yes. Or five to one? Three to one, I think, yeah. Three to one, okay. Uh, no, I, I have to look that up. Those are those are pretty good odds. Yeah, those are good. <laughs> <laughs> I can never tell. Uh, okay, Maury Shank is also with us. Uh, Maury was uh, formerly uh, the managing partner of our London office and now an advisor on European technology and cybersecurity issues and also a private equity investor and director of technology companies uh, and our expert on all things European. Uh, Maury, welcome. Uh, nice to be here, Stuart. You get. You want to uh, identify a story of the week? Well, even from here in London, I'm going to agree with Michael and Jason that it's all the U.S. Uh, cyber legis- legislation. All right. Well, then we'll t- we'll we'll do that first. Uh, uh, I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS, and the record holder for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Uh, but I have to say, I don't understand how you guys missed the CFIUS story of the week which was the uh, uh, extensive New York Times coverage of the Clinton Foundation and Hillary Clinton and uh, Uranium One. Um, I I noticed that the uh, uh, New York Times didn't even mention the word CFIUS until three-quarters of the way through the article, uh, um, uh, but the burden of that article was that... uh, Tens of millions of dollars were donated to the Clinton Foundation at a time when the uh, State Department was um, part of the CFIUS review process for uh, a Russian acquisition of U.S. uranium assets. Uh, and the implication was that there was somehow, that that was corrupt or uh, sleazy. Uh, um, and uh, my response to that, which I tweeted out, uh, was... If the Russians paid millions of dollars to get the State Department to vote yes in CFIUS, they have to be dumber than anybody ever thought the Russians were. Because there's never been, as far as I can tell, an, an instant in recorded history where the State Department didn't vote yes in CFIUS. Uh, um, and so uh, uh, this strikes me as maybe more... Um, uh, the New York Times here, remarkably, considering they're covering a Democrat, is making more of this than, uh, frankly, the uh, the actual bureaucratic practice uh, would suggest, uh, since uh, the State Department only gets one vote in about seven on CFIUS, and everybody knows what it will be. Uh, uh, so um, uh, paying somebody to get to deliver the State Department uh, is 
It's just sort of a silly idea. So that's that's my perspective on uh, uh, the story of the week. Why don't we move to what everybody else thought? We should. Yeah. Hey, Stuart, I think we should stop right there because there's no way the podcast can get better. Than, than <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard anything even close to uh, such a defense of Hillary Clinton coming out of your mouth. It's true. It's true. Uh, I, and yeah, I'm, I'm highly fun. unlikely. There's only one one plausible scenario in which I might vote for her uh, uh, next year. But uh, I thought she got a raw deal on that uh, uh, and that the uh, New York Times was hyping the, uh, the connection. All right, uh, let's go uh, off to Congress where uh, perhaps I can become more uh, uh, um, typecast. Um, the House passed two bills, one drafted by the Intelligence Committee and one drafted by uh, the Homeland Security Committee uh, uh, for information sharing about cybersecurity risks. And uh, true to form, uh, right to the last minute, they were... Uh, kowtowing to the privacy lobby and making changes to make the privacy lobby happy, which, of course, they never will be able to do, uh, but uh, they may make them happier or they may make their bill look uh, less or more attractive than the Senate bill. Uh, um, The thing that bothered me about the the last set of changes, there was a set of changes made by the managers uh, um, on the floor uh, to the intelligence bill, which is, I think, frankly, the main bill. Um, uh, And uh, the privacy groups and, indeed, the president in his uh, statement of administration policy had said, uh, we don't like the... Uh, the protection for uh, the people who are sharing defensive measures because we think it might encourage irresponsible use of defensive measures. So they they greatly restricted the uh, liability protection for people who are handing out defensive measures by defining defensive measures in a very aggressive way as uh, uh, or excluding from the definition anything that would uh, uh, on someone else's system other than your own or one you have permission to do, render data inaccessible. Uh, as I read that, if you were to encrypt stuff on your um, system and it could only be decrypted by getting a, a, a credentials from your system, uh, and somebody comes in and steals that data and moves it to their system and then cannot access it because it's encrypted on their file, you've rendered data on somebody else's system inaccessible, and therefore it's not a defensive measure that protects you, uh, uh, as to which your liability would be protected. I have to say that's just nuts uh, uh, to say we we're, that's not a defensive measure that we're willing to give people leeway to adopt and share information about. It was it was bizarre. I don't know, Michael. Uh, there are other things about this where the effort to please the privacy guys uh, went overboard, but that was the one that bothered me. The the other one I've been troubled about is the uh, notion that uh, uh, you can. Uh, uh, impose restrictions on the private sector when they share the data, telling them that they have to pull out uh, information that's personally identifiable, uh, which means that they basically are risking liability or loss of the protection from the bill if they don't ex- go through and scrub all their data and have lawyers review it. And I thought that also was uh, uh, a step that nobody, uh, even the Senate, had taken. Uh, Did you take a look at that? Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, In order to get the liability protection, companies got to remove personal information uh, uh, that identifies a specific person if the person is not related to the cybersecurity threat. If you don't go ahead and do that, then then you lose out on the liability protection. Um, on the other hand, there is a big, uh, there's another big carrot, which is what really surprised me even more, which is that, uh, um, you're immune from liability if you have a, if you fail to act on cybersecurity threat information that you receive from someone else, which seems to me companies are going to be waving about when they get accused of, of negligence, um, you know, the next target that, that gets hacked and, and has, uh, 
huge lawsuits brought against it. It's going to say, well, you're suing us because we didn't act on uh, cybersecurity threat information that we got from the government or from another company that warned us about this. We're, we're immune from these suits under this act. That's interesting. That, that yeah. struck me as bizarre. I, I, I think I, I've been puzzled over why some parts of industry, including the chamber and uh, financial industries, have gotten behind this bill with such enthusiasm. Maybe maybe that's the answer, is that they like the idea of getting uh, uh, liability protection that sort of comes with the data. It's almost as though you say, well... If, if that's your argument, uh, uh, then I don't have. To, then I should uh, uh, be immune because I got this information through a legitimate information sharing uh, uh, organization. But what, what we may end up with, I think, is when you combine all of these things, is that no one's going to want to share information because it's too burdensome. They've got to strip out all personally identifiable information. Um, they've also got to. Uh, put good security measures in place to protect this, the same information that they share. Uh, and yet, at the same time, they're all going to want to receive information so they can get the benefit of this um, liability protection uh, for failing to act on information that you receive. So, so everyone's going to be waiting for information to come in, but no one's going to be putting any in to the system because it's too burdensome. I mean, that, that's... I think there's a, uh, isn't there a, isn't there a fable about that where everybody is supposed to bring stuff for the soup and all they bring is stone? It's like the opposite of the gift of the magi. Yeah. <laughs> but it also creates, to Michael's point, this weird weird situation where if you discover a threat to your system because of your own actions and fail to act on it, you can get sued. Right. But if you discover the threat because someone else shares it with you, then you would be immune. So there's a there's a business model here for all the people who are doing signatures and protection and alerts for you. They need to launder those through an information sharing organization, not just send them to you direct. Uh, and then uh, you pay them, and they 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 produce the uh, ISAM material. Uh, yeah, that is that's very interesting. In any event, uh, Congress did pass the uh, the House passed both of these. They went on to the Senate, uh, and the Senate uh, maybe predictably managed to get this all tangled up with 215 renewal, uh, which has to happen by May 22nd as well. And so it's not at all clear where this is going to go legislatively or when it's going to go, uh, uh, since uh, uh, at least the Senate has, I think. They have Iran to deal with. They've got a, uh, a couple of must-pass highway and NDAA bills. Uh, uh, and then by May 22nd, they have to reauthorize 215 or deal with it some other way. Um, and that, uh, my, my sense is the, the House put all that off so that they could get this bill through. But the Senate won't be as successful in doing that. Uh, um, a, and a remarkably... No one has really surfaced any serious change to, well, that's not quite true. Uh, uh, Majority Leader McConnell said, uh, how about a three-year reauthorization just straight up for 215, which I think probably tells us what the um, extreme bid is going to be. The House isn't going to do that, and my guess is that... uh, It'll be hard to persuade the Senate to do that. Um, so, um, but I haven't seen a lot of uh, compromises floated. Uh, um, so, uh, this will be um, uh, this legislative debate on this one will be uh, sort of Hobbesian, uh, nasty, brutish, and short. Um, any thoughts on that? No, I think I think you're right. It's it seems like we're just getting up to a point where the the program's going to wither on the vine and go away since there's not a serious effort to pass something. Oh, I I don't agree with that. I think they're going to have to pass something. I uh, I don't think the the, the I don't think they want to uh, um, kill the program. Um, I think the president. So what's, doesn't... So what's the vehicle? I mean, is just, you think it's just going to come up at the last second? Yeah, yeah. I think I, I think they will they will. They, uh, McConnell's, I think, already signaling that he's going to bring it forward. Uh, uh, and uh, I do not think if you're the Republicans, you want to say, uh, give the president what he wants, which is probably to kill the program, and let him blame you when something goes wrong. Uh, so I think they'll they'll put something forward. Uh, the question is whether it's a, uh, uh, a real compromise that actually saves some of the capabilities or whether it's just something to say we came up with a compromise. 
but you know it's 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 remarkable that the Senate I think wants something uh, House leadership it's a problem for them because they've got a real split in their uh, in their ranks on this know uh, and it's not going to go away uh, but that may also argue for a very short um, uh, discussion that the that the leadership at least in the house will try to broker something at the last minute and say well this is the best anybody's going to get let's just pass it uh, uh, and let's not fight among ourselves um, speaking about fighting among ourselves uh, uh, the European Union and the Digital, uh, um, I, 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 they change their name every uh, uh, couple of years, but uh, the guys who do digital commerce, uh, the, the director general, Oettinger, uh, 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 continues a remarkable string of actually admitting what the European Union's uh, uh, strategy here uh, in uh, high tech and Web 2.0 uh, is, which is... Uh, um, we lost the fair and square market battle, so now let's just regulate the hell out of the winners uh, in the United States in the hopes that that will create some space for European companies. Uh, at least that's how I interpreted it. Uh, uh, Maury, uh, you've probably got a more nuanced uh, view of that. Well, it's not too far off, but I think there is some nuance. So um, it, it's confusing, though. Um, I think you're referring to an article in the Wall Street Journal, I think it was this week, talking as, uh, that there was a study by Commissioner Oettinger's office suggesting that a super regulator for Internet platforms would be created. Exactly. Um, and that's something I, I think they're just looking at that. Um, there is a paper about it, but I think it's rather unlikely that anything like a, re- a new regulator would come along any time in the next few years. But two things I would say is, yes, uh, the European Union is going after U.S. Internet companies in a variety of ways. There's the uh, competition complaint against Google, which, as far as I can see, it is based upon some pretty sketchy facts. There's uh, some of the data protection attacks. Um, and the other thing is the, there seems to be a mess in the commission between, like, who's responsible for it. The responsibility for the digital single market has been split between uh, Erdinger, who seems a bit of a mad dog, as you put it, Stuart, and uh, Andres Ansip, the vice president of the commission, who's a, a little more flexible. But a lot of sour grapes about not having European champions in this area. Yeah, I, you know, I, I have to say, uh, um, when you look at it from a European perspective, not only did they lose the Web 2.0 fight, uh, um, but uh, um, the big Internet giants have eaten the the principal industrial policy victory of the European Union in the last 25 years, which was their creation and uh, jamming of the GSM uh, uh, standard into uh, cell phones and the construction of a large cell phone uh, uh, infrastructure and manufacturing uh, uh, base inside Europe, which has just been completely decimated by Apple and uh, Google's Android uh, uh, to the point where, you know, Microsoft could sweep in and buy up Nokia. Um, It must really gall them because they uh, they would point to with pride to their industrial policy there uh, for for a decade or more. I'm not going to disagree with that. I think there's a lot of pain in Europe um, uh, uh, in general. I don't know if you've read Peter Thiel's new book, um, Zero to One, but he refers to the European outlook, I think, as indefinite pessimism. Like we're, we're pessimistic and we're not quite sure where we're going. Yeah, um, I didn't. So, I didn't read that, although I'm not surprised. Uh, he's uh, he, he he's 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 quite candid. Yeah, I, I think it's not an intelligent policy for Europe, though, to to act like this because there is a lot of vibrancy and you know startup ecosystems in places like London and Berlin, and aggressive regulation like that is just going to throttle throttle the future. Yeah. Well, I, the other thing that I when you while you, while they're beating up uh, the big tech giants in the U.S., uh, we probably shouldn't uh, overlook the fact that uh, uh, a U.K. terror, uh, counterterrorism official uh, said that uh, I, he was talking about U.S. technology companies. He called them friendly to terrorists uh, because of their policies on uh, responding to uh, government uh, requests for data. Uh, and I think that's all part of the same 
uh, inclination to say there's something wrong with the U.S. tech companies. We just have to figure out what it is this week. Perhaps. I see something a little more specific there. He's one of a series of people who've been making comments directed at the encryption programs of the U.S. tech companies like Apple and Google. Uh, this is Mark Rowley, who I think you're referring to, mm-hmm. but Alex Youngster, the new head of MI6, said something somewhat similar a few weeks ago, and John Storrs, the former head of the SIS, said something. I think there's, and the head of a senior GCHQ official, who I couldn't quite locate the speech, also said something a few months ago. I think the government here has been telling the troops to start making public speeches attacking encryption by the U.S. Internet companies, a lot like the crypto wars that you were involved in in the States 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, Cameron did it when he came to visit uh, the president, and he got the president to say some pretty uh, skeptical things about end-to-end encryption. Yeah. Um, I think Cameron is behind it, but isn't um, doesn't want to give speeches on this issue and has told people at a level or two down to do it. Yeah, I, but I... I, I if our closest ally in the world probably is taking that attitude toward end-to-end encryption, you kind of wonder where does Silicon Valley think it's going to find support for the technology that it's rolling out? I mean, it could say, we don't care, uh, we're big enough to force it down your throat, uh, but I don't think there are a lot of governments that really uh, are enthusiastic about this. Well, power to the people, I suppose. Yeah, well, that 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 is the idea, I suppose. That you know that uh, uh, individuals will want it, even if governments hate it. Uh, but boy, you know, um, uh, thumbing your nose at every government in the country in the world is uh, a uh, high stakes strategy. I won't disagree with that. So news from RSA. Uh, everybody in Washington went to RSA in San Francisco. The big. Uh, tech security uh, uh, conference and gave a speech. Uh, uh, Ash Carter from Defense, Jay Johnson from DHS, John Carlin from Justice, Tom Wheeler from the FCC, uh, Michael Daniel from uh, the White House. Uh, um, I, I, I'm not sure I can go through all of them. Ash Carter did roll out a cyber stress, the DOD's cyber war strategy, um, which I thought was better than the last one and still deeply disappointing. It was more like a kind of interesting white paper on what you might have to do if you wanted to come up with a cyber cyber war strategy. It was not a strategy for actually winning a cyber war. Uh, maybe it was a strategy for having picket skirmishes at your border, um, uh, but that's a little like uh, the French in 1939 saying our strategy for war with uh, uh, Germany is, uh, we will repel their platoons at the Maginot line with, uh, skirmishers of our own. It's not exactly a complete strategy, uh, and it sort of overlooks, uh, Belgium. Um, Jay Johnson was a, not a, uh, not a well-received speech. Uh, Michael Daniel actually, uh, doubled down on saying we really need to find some kind of way to, uh, uh, make encryption accessible to the government when we need it. Uh, um, I, I, let me ask Jason. I, the government is saying this a lot. They clearly, it, it's heartfelt and they're allowed to say it. And the president even created a little bit of space there. Uh, uh, but they can't believe they're going to get legislation. Uh, what, why are they doing this? I think because they can't believe they're going to get legislation. And okay. that the only way to do it is to put some degree of Public pressure on the providers to back away a little bit. Okay, so this is this is uh, uh, pushing them, uh, maybe thinking, well, you know, um, it can't get worse, uh, and uh, if something bad happens, uh, we will have built a foundation on which to blame uh, the tech providers. But that and that is in fact the only way they're going to get legislation is right. if something bad happens and they can tie it to to this the, these steps taken by the providers. Yeah, that was, that was interesting. Okay, so uh, uh, just uh, one or two things to uh, to wrap up. Uh, uh, the FTC is making 
um, is, has signed up to, I don't know, probably number 55 in its security uh, um, uh, terms, uh, uh, settlements. Uh, and I thought this was particularly ridiculous. Uh, um, uh, but, uh, Jason, you looked at that a little more closely, didn't you? Yeah, they have now almost as many privacy settlements as we have podcast episodes. Um so I think this is in you the... You don't suppose there's a, there's a, a, a hidden competition there. <laughs> God, I hope not for the sake of industry. Um, exactly. Otherwise, we need to go out of business. Um, I thought this was digging deep even for the FTC. So the settlement was with a company called Nomi Technologies, which is a company that allows retailers to track customer movements in their stores. So what Nomi does is they put sensors in the client stores, and the sensors collect the MAC addresses of customers' mobile devices as those devices are searching for Wi-Fi signals as you move about the store. And then they, they don't actually collect your MAC address. They use a cryptographic hash function, and they assign a unique identifier to your device, and then they provide that data and aggregate to their clients so they can study your shopping and your browsing habits. So the FTC alleged that there were uh, the privacy policy that Nomi had online said three things. Number one, we will provide a mechanism for you to opt out here on our website so you cannot be tracked. Number two, we'll also provide an opt-out mechanism in the client store so you can go to the store and opt out there. And number three... Um, there was an implied promise because of number two that you would be notified that tracking was even going on in the first place. Otherwise, how would you know to exercise your opt-out rights? The FTC said the this is what the FTC promise. said. Yes. yes, they actually used the words implied promise in an enforcement document, which was sort of, as a former prosecutor, a little strange to me. Yeah. Um, so what they alleged is that the implied promise that they'll notify you're being tracked and the express promise that you can opt out in the store was false because there was no in-store opt-out mechanism. Um, uh, and because customers were not, in fact, informed that they were being tracked in the stores. So they, the FTC characterized that as, as a, a deceptive trade practice. And according to the complaint, Nomi's technology was used to collect data on about 9 million mobile devices just in the first nine months of 2013 alone. And as part of the settlement that Nomi's now agreed to, they have promised they will not misrepresent their privacy policies anymore. It's a really, you know, heavy-hitting settlement. Um, but there are a number of things about it that I thought Did were interesting. Did they pay any money? They did not pay any money, but they will have to if they violate the privacy policies again, as, as I understand it. Um, beyond the fact that Nomi has no control over what retailers do, and you would right. think that if anybody's got an obligation to provide an in-store opt-out mechanism, it is the store. Um, and if anybody's responsible for notifying the store's customers that they're being tracked, it might, you know, be the store. Um, no, so Nomi's got no control over that. But more fundamentally. And this, I think, is what led to two dissents of the FTC commissioners. It was a three-to-two vote. And, oh, and right. At with last. Three <laughs> separate opinions. It was like reading a Supreme Court case. Um, the, the majority issued a statement responding to the dissents, and, and each of the dissenters issued their own statement. And, and I think the dissenters had a point. Uh, Maureen Olhausen was one of the dissenters, and she argued that you it was a question of prosecutorial discretion. There was no harm to consumers. You had a young company that exceeded its legal obligations in trying to provide opt-out mechanisms and wrote a check that it couldn't cash although it, it cashed the most important check, which was the web-based opt-out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and without any benefit to itself, uh, it, it over-promised, um, and nobody was hurt. And so as a matter of prosecut- prosecutorial discretion, the case shouldn't have been brought. Joshua Wright, who's more of an antagonist, I think, to the majority the, historically, went a little further and said, um, you couldn't argue that the, that the misrepresentation, if it even was one, was material, because you can't argue that customers would have made different choices but for the alleged deception. Uh, and he cited data that indicated that the opt-out mechanism on the website was actually heavily utilized. And it does stand a reason. And if someone was concerned enough about this that they wanted to opt out, they wouldn't do it in every single store they shopped in, but they would make one stop course, at right. the website and do it there. Um, and he also argued that, that as a matter of prosecutorial discretion, this was not uh, an appropriate use of their resources. And, and I think in this case, the dissenters had it right. This seemed... Uh, this seems like an overreach even for uh, an FTC that is not allergic to overreaching. Yeah. Well, it's nice to see that uh, it's become a little more controversial uh, uh, because it is it is crazy uh, implied promises that they're enforcing. Uh, you could probably find a lot of implied promises in the world if, if your job is to enforce every implied promise. Uh, well, they have implied rules, so it makes sense. That they would, <laughs> of course, of look course. For implied promises that violate them. <laughs> All right, um, then let's move on to our next uh, uh, segment. Uh, we'll be talking to uh, Mary DeRosa about uh, uh, her role uh, and the role of law in uh, uh, the National Security Council as it deals with cybersecurity issues. So that's that's what I'd like to talk about. Okay. Uh, um, and maybe we could just start by walking through something like the uh, Sony case uh, um, and 
talking about the legal and policy issues that would likely come up uh, that you had a ringside seat for. Uh, so Sony case, uh, uh, basic uh, uh, story there is that uh, Sony is attacked. Uh, uh, its um, uh, files are distributed uh, uh, widely and publicly. Uh, uh, they're threatened um, with worse uh, uh, if the uh, uh, movie, uh, the interview, is actually shown. Uh, and uh, they, uh, theaters are threatened with uh, a 911 attack, a, a really stupid uh, 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 threat, but one which seems to have more plausibility because of the impact of the hacking on, on Sony. Uh, uh, and so uh, um, uh, the theaters knuckle under. Now nobody is going to show the uh, uh the, the movie, uh, finally somebody steps forward and they start distributing it on the internet, uh, uh, and, uh, the, the, after the president has said he thinks that, uh, it should have been shown. Um, and then, uh, uh, during the course of that, uh, discussion, the president comes out and says, we've attributed this attack to, uh, uh North Korea. Uh, we believe they've done it. We will retaliate, uh, at a time and place of our own choosing, uh, and then a variety of things go wrong for the North Koreans, uh, um, including uh, they lose Internet connectivity for all six um, uh, PCs that they have in the country. Uh, <laughs> uh, that, uh, uh, that story, uh, you know, the attack, the, uh, the response, the attribution, the retaliation... Uh, all of it would have taken place in the context of um, uh, the National Security Council. So, I guess um, let's let's just sort of walk through how the National Security Council would handle uh, a situation like that. Let's imagine we've got a a big attack on an American institution, uh, and uh, uh, it's been compromised, and its files are being spread across Wikipedia or sorry, uh, uh, WikiLeaks uh, and other uh, parts of the internet. Uh, um, the president calls a, uh, uh, a a meeting of the National Security Council to figure out what to do about this. So what happens next? Well, so I'll start out first. I you know I'll say I've been I've been away from the White House for four years, yes. and that's four years in which a lot of cyber stuff has happened. So, but I do I you know I. I uh, I teach a course on these issues, and I, I follow it, obviously. So I think I can give a sense of how the process would work and what what the issues are, a pretty fairly accurate sense. Um, uh, the first thing w- that would happen before the president calling an NSC would be uh, lower-level meetings, deputies committee meetings, and principals committee meetings. These are the these are the the you know the the, the uh, deputies and the uh, cabinet-level people will get together to. Um, uh, discuss and make recommendations on particular issues. So on something like this, um, that process uh, now is led by um, Lisa Monaco, who in my time it was John Brennan, who is the assistant to the president for uh, uh, Homeland Security, counterterrorism, and a variety of of other things, and deputy uh, national security advisor. So uh, they would they would uh, get together, and you know, meanwhile, you have uh, the FBI out there uh, in Sony collecting, um, uh, addressing uh, the situation, and um, so basically, they're treating it like a criminal investigation or well, something of the sort. Well, it, it it is at least that. I mean, that right. that is going on, and the FBI is out there uh, collecting. Uh, so. Because you know, I think you want to focus on uh, on legal issues. Sort of next to that, in connection with that, there uh, the, the lawyers would get together and um, uh, the lawyers group, uh, the cleverly titled group. Um, so there's, there's really a lawyers group that is, there sort of is an a adjunct group. to the National Security Council. Yes, um, and uh, and nobody ever thought of a of a more clever name for it than the lawyers group. Um, but so it would be convened by the National Security Council legal advisor, um, and uh, they would get together, uh, you know, probably in a meeting, although, you know, sometimes things are done, you know, civets over the phone uh, on paper. But they would be... Civets would be... A uh, secure video uh, teleconferences. Yeah, okay. Uh, so, uh, so, but the, the, what the lawyers are trying to do, and they're trying to do it very fast, is, uh, you know... So, uh, 
figure out what are the questions that the policymakers are going to need answered, the legal questions, and try to get out ahead of that and try to get consensus among uh, among uh, the different the, the different lawyers and the different agencies, and you'll have the, you'll have um, the National Security Council legal advisor, um, the the uh, counsel for, to the DNI, the Council CIA, DOD General Counsel, Council of the Chairman, State, OLC, and Justice. So that collection of lawyers, maybe some others, and uh, so they're first going to be you know they're they're going to be uh, anticipating the questions that'll come up. Uh, and first, uh, you know, question, not the most difficult, but first set of questions is what do, you know, it, it, are there any legal issues with what we need to do to, to, to attribute, to collect more information about where this came from? Um, and, uh, uh, and so there you have. So that would, that would mean, um, what, Resources do we have, and what legal authorities do we have to go out and gather information on this? So right. you, you, you might just send somebody out uh, with a search, search warrant, uh, uh, and for that, it's not a hard legal question. Uh, but you might also want to do a counterintelligence investigation. Right. So, I mean, I don't think in this stage these are any of these are particularly hard. I mean, the the question of uh, of what we have and how we can do it and what our capabilities are of obviously those are not the legal questions. But right. um, the authorities, uh, you know, it's your intelligence authorities, your counterintelligence authorities, and your um, uh, you know your law enforcement authority authorities, uh, just as in any other. Effort to collect and uh, your foreign intel, you know, if, uh, assuming this is, um, we're looking overseas, then, uh, um, you know, they, we have, can use foreign intelligence authorities. So. Do we have any plausible law enforcement authorities to operate overseas? I guess you could, you, you can't get a search warrant to search some, uh, uh, something overseas, can you? Well, uh, you know, it's a, you know, you have, um, different processes that are, Relatively cumbersome. Uh, Jason could probably talk about this uh, more than I could, uh, but um, but you certainly have. I mean, we have we investigate international uh, crimes all the time. Uh, the FBI does, and uh, and there are uh, mechanisms to collect okay. information. Uh, but that you know, in an incident like this, you would also be uh, using. So you would, you would presumably you put the intelligence community on alert to try to figure out uh, who's causing this attack. Like, yeah, I mean, I, the intelligence enough. community will already be on alert. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Um, uh, uh, nobody would have to to tell them to do that. But um, so yeah, so that's a you know a major major early challenge. Uh, uh, one that in the Sony case appears to have been resolved uh, more quickly, uh, uh, maybe the, you know than than. Uh, um, in, in past cases that they were able to attribute, um, f- reliably enough to go public with it and, uh, and in, with a great deal of certainty and, uh, you know, that whether, that how much of that was through technical, um, sort of tracing back and how much was it uh, from intelligence from, um, other, you know, other types, other sources. Uh, I don't know the answer to that, but, um. So, uh, is there, is there a discussion of what kind of an attack this is and what, uh, uh, what I guess at this stage, unless, unless you're thinking about uh, retaliation, you don't need to ask much about the nature of the attack. It's clearly a crime. Uh, it's clearly of intelligence interest to the United States because of what it demonstrates for foreign capabilities. So they've got all the authority they need to go look at it uh, and to do attribution and doesn't require a lot of legal um, hand-holding. That's right. And I just on, on the word retaliation, I know I'm being a sort of a lawyer nerd here, but it wouldn't be retaliation that you're uh, that you're going to, you know, if you're going to respond, it would be, um, you know, to address a threat, not to retaliate. Oh, okay. Even 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 if we take down the entire internet in uh, North Korea, which I, 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 my guess is we didn't do, but it, that's not retaliation. It's well, you know, if and uh, if you are responding under international law, and there are options, and we could talk about, uh, you know, depending on what kind of mm-hmm. how you define what uh, what what the attack was on Sony. Um, uh, you you can you can respond to address threats and there are a number of actions that you can take but it wouldn't be um, it's not a it's not a retaliation or a punishment 
Okay. I mean, law enforcement can punish. But, but we're not allowed to do that in uh, uh, international affairs, huh? Sorry, not. It is not. We, it, it's we, we not. Don't, we don't it, use those words. It, it's but, not the basis of of uh, of uh, actions under international law. This explains why they never put me at the State Department. Yes. Uh, one uh, of the many. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, okay, so. Um, it, they, uh, let's let's assume they attra- attribute it. Uh, uh, and uh, next uh, question is, um, I, I guess there could be questions about what can the president do about this, right? He can he can order uh, uh, some activity vis-a-vis North Korea. He can't really do anything about whether um, the interview gets shown on TV or not, right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, other than, you know, the bully pulpit, he can't, he, there's, there is no action. He but the bully there. pulpit clearly worked. worked. Uh, and, and obviously, uh, uh, Sony was sort of disconcerted to have the president talking about, uh, uh, them and, and sort of calling them out for cowardice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that led to the disclosures, uh, to the, uh, to the showing of the movie. So now the, the, the president's Asking the question, well, what do we do to discourage future activity? Is that is that is that okay? Can I yes, say yeah. we want to discourage future activity of this sort uh, or uh, ongoing? I mean, uh, or yes. So, um, a, what kind of legal analysis is the uh, National Security Council going to need to think about that? You know, what do we do now? The the, the attack has occurred, and we would like for no one to think that this is a good idea to mm-hmm. be repeated. Um, so, I mean, the, the the deputies and the president, you know, the, the NSC would be discussing a range of options, uh, um, none of them in this case uh, particularly uh, satisfying, or, or there are, you know, there are limitations, uh, as we all know. I mean, that's one of the real difficulties in this area. Uh, but, you you know, diplomatic options, sanctions, uh, law enforcement, or some sort of, um, uh, you know, in a lay sense, uh, uh, offensive kind of action in the systems of, uh, of an so other clear, countries. Clearly one of the things that, that the, the president did after this, uh, well, they can name and shame, right, which we hadn't done a lot of, mm-hmm. uh, and he clearly did do, uh, no legal issues around naming and shaming. No. Uh, no. Except that, you know, the attribution got Challenged, and somebody you would have thought somebody, probably a lawyer, would have asked the question: How are we going to defend this attribution yes. when people question it? Yeah, and so yeah, so that is a role for the lawyers, although not sort of not technically a legal role, but in the kind of the uh, counseling is that you're gonna, you know, uh, if uh, there is a decision, a desire to go public, you want to make, you know, to really press on. Uh, how, how well, you know, do we have enough information to, uh, that's unclassified that you can, um, you can, um, uh, explain it publicly? You don't have to, uh, right. but, uh, but it's, you know, sort of, uh, It would be embarrassing to, to announce that, uh, uh, you know it was North Korea and then not to be able to explain why when people ask mm-hmm. reasonably, uh, how do you know? Right. And <laughs> it looks as though, um, the FBI said, well, well, we'll attribute it based on our investigation, and that, then they didn't have as much as they needed to answer the questions, and so well, in the end... The, right, uh, and in the end, I mean, that doesn't mean you don't do it, um, right. but that's sort of something to be aware of, uh, and it did come up there, and there was, uh, to me, a sort of surprising, uh, maybe it shouldn't have been surprising, but a, a, um, a lack of kind of deference to uh, to what the government said on this, I and mean, you you would there was really no credit given whatsoever yeah. um, by at least uh, some. Um, and uh, well, well, one, that's a sort one, of a one, sign of the One times. of the guys who, who was most skeptical and had a, some elaborate alternative was uh, 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 one of the spokesmen for a company called Norse Security, mm-hmm. which recently just announced uh, that they discovered a massive increase in Iranian attacks, and then it turned out it was just like Iranian uh, IP addresses that were scanning certain uh, uh, U.S. addresses, which is sort of not an attack, uh, and widely viewed as hyped for the press value, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so that would suggest that maybe their skepticism was also hyped for the press value. Yeah. And I mean, it, w- one of the things that, that you know, that, that people uh, who were commenting either didn't understand or didn't talk about is that, you know, there are a lot of 
we get our information about these things in a lot of ways. It's not only technically, you know, going right. back. We might have had intel, and I have no idea, um, but we, you know, had intel from other sources that we obviously couldn't discuss. And uh, so, you know, um, uh, it's a co- that's a complicated, you know, what you can say publicly and is uh, is is complicated, and and you know, lawyers advise. But, so, uh, what 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 kind of Issues, legal issues, uh, uh, surround the question of what we can do. Because mm-hmm. uh, uh, I think that's that's where I've always assumed there was way too much lawyering. Uh, uh, people saying, "Well, I'm not sure it's an act of war." Or, you know, can we have we invoked the right to self defense here? Uh, um, it, but I, I, I frankly need a little more clarity than I have about how right. that analysis goes. And well, okay. So it is difficult, and there are uh, there are some challenges. I think you know, as in, in my view, most things in the cyber area, the legal challenges are dwarfed in some ways, or or at, at least track what the policy challenges are. And um, but uh, but you know, if you want to take um, some sort of a military uh, offensive action. Um, and I, it, again, I sort of always, it's not actually technically legally offensive, but, um, uh, the, uh, is under international law, the first thing you're gonna, you, you do have to do, look at is what kind of, uh, what did they do to us? What kind of an attack was it? Um, uh, was it a, um, uh, you know, was it, did it amount to a use of force under, uh, international law? Uh, and if so, uh, or an armed attack, um, that we can respond to with a use of force. Uh, and, uh, if so, there are sort of a range of options. Uh, and if not, uh, you know, did it violate our sovereignty? What are our options then? And, and so there are, but, uh. So you could have a violation of, of sovereignty that is not an armed attack. That's right. And, and, and is the imposition of sanctions a violation of sovereignty? No. Okay. No. Uh, yeah. So sanctions uh, is you know. Um, so I would assume it's a violation of our sovereignty to go and do something to a computer on U.S. soil. Well, so you know, uh, if going in affecting nothing uh, at all, maybe collecting. I think you know one of the major issues here, and again, this is an issue in the legal and policy. Is this these it, the law of armed conflict has been around for a long time. Application to this new area is is new and not very well developed. So, when you get into you know uh, one of the reasons the lawyering can be slow in this area is they're just it's so fact dependent and we don't have you know a lot of facts. So, what exactly is a violation of sovereignty uh, or what is a use of force or what is an armed attack? Not all that developed, and we have to develop our uh, you know our uh, position on that. Um, uh, which again is mixed legal policy issues. So I think. Safe to say that that um, and in, in fact the uh, I, uh, I, I know Chris Painter said so the U.S. government has said what happened in Sony was a violation of sovereignty. That's not really hard. I mean that's uh, um, uh, yeah because it was an exercise of state power over uh, somebody in the United States to get them to do something that they weren't required to do under U.S. law. That's right. I mean and and it, nobody no. F- person entered the United States necessarily uh, that we know of, uh, but that is not in this area going to be required. Um, so was it an armed attack? So was it an armed attack? I, you know, nobody seems to be, I, I think, nobody seems to be saying it is. I think the answer is no. I don't know enough about if um, if there were computers that were actually rendered unusable afterwards. There were. Um, that that could raise a question. I mean, there you, because generally, again, not a very well-developed area, but uh, uh, for a use of, what is the use of force over armed attack? You're looking for com- a physical effect or some kind of a destructive effect. And then, depending on how severe, um, it could be considered an armed attack. Um, uh I think so, this so does not, my, you know, as practice, this does not rise to the level, the Sony attack did not arise to the level of an armed attack. If it's not an probably. armed attack, then what happens? That, that means there are certain things you're not supposed to do right. under international law? So under international law, um, uh, you, uh, there are only a few way, you know, justifiable reasons to use force. One of the justifiable reasons to use force is in self-defense in response to an armed attack. Uh-huh. So if uh, if we uh, want to use force, meaning do something destructive, uh-huh. uh, and then you know here you see that the definition, how you define it, and how narrowly or how broadly de- 
you know, interests sort of vary depending on yeah. you, you which might one want, you are. You, you, you might want to say, well, we shut down all their computers, but that wasn't an armed attack. Right. Uh, right. Or that wasn't the, uh, uh, yes. Uh, so, um, uh, whereas when they did it to us, that was. Right. Uh, so, uh, I mean, it's, compli- it's yeah. one of the complications in developing your definitions in this area. But, um, but if, uh, so generally speaking, if you, you can use a, f- use a force in self-defense if you have, uh, if there has been an armed attack. If not, if, if you have not been attacked, uh, have, you know, uh, there has not been an armed attack, um, the, under international law, you are not supposed to use, uh, force. Um, but there are other, uh, there are, and uh, again, developing, but there are other measures you could take. Uh, there's the doctor, the law of countermeasures, um, where you can, um, take measures that fall below a use of force. Um, uh, to sort of address uh, an ongoing attack or an ongoing threat. And where does this um, unable or unwilling standard come in? Uh, is that that's a justification for an intrusion into the sovereignty of somebody else who isn't stopping an attack on you? Right? Yeah. So generally, the unable or un- unwilling test comes in uh, the do- uh, in the doctrine of neutrality, which is if there is an armed conflict and there uh, and but a, an attack. Or a threat is coming from a neutral country. What can one of the combatants uh, do? The you know the victim do to address that? Generally, you can't take action in a neutral country unless you have their consent. But there is this doctrine of unwilling and unable that says um, if uh, if they the country is unwilling or unable to address a threat against you under some circumstances, uh, you uh, you can. Uh, you know, enter the country without consent or violate sovereignty without the, uh, without consent. It's a controversial, uh, somewhat controversial, and not every country agrees uh, to the, that there is a doctrine of unwilling or unable. But U.S. the U.S. position is that there is, and we have uh, so, relied on it. So uh, let's suppose somebody uh, uh, unlikely in this administration were to sit at the table and advocate the Baker solution, which was to put copies of the interview on DVDs, put them into balloons, and fly them over Pyongyang and drop them. Uh, which actually somebody did do, mm-hmm. uh, but it was a South Korean. Uh, um, how, did, how would you analyze that legally? Well, it's a, it's a violation it's, it's of sovereignty. sovereignty. Right? It's not a use of force. Um, I mean, uh, you know, yeah. so then, I mean, I, I guess the analysis would be: is that a is that a countermeasure? Um, uh, and uh, you know, uh, is it proportional? And is it does it actually address the threat? And uh, you know, or does it just make you feel good? Which is <laughs> well, truly that's a part of addressing the threat. Okay. Well, without the DVD players, all it does is yeah. Really well, yes, yeah, so, uh, I actually do have the DVD players apparently. Yeah. Um, uh, and and this guy was he was also dropping thumb drives in case they didn't have have them. Um, okay. I uh, and so um, the analysis. Runs through that, uh, and uh, in the neutral country, let, let's take a, a DDoS attack because we're running low on time, and I want to jump to the mm-hmm. GitHub attack or the DDoS attacks on uh, U.S. banks. The obvious way to stop that is to figure out all the uh, machines that are attacking you, which are spread all across the world, and um, uh, Take the malware out of the machine either by going after uh, the command and control server and uh, uh, making it unresponsive or actually repairing the machine so they no longer uh, are responsive to the uh, uh, to the command and control servers uh, uh, those machines are located in let's say seventy five different countries uh, uh, but it's the Iranians who put malware on them and you're trying to take it off. Uh, uh, what do you have to do? Can you just say, well, it's obvious that that's what we have to do. They're attacking us. We're going to stop them. Uh, or do you have to go through some elaborate diplomatic minuet? Well, um, again, policy and legal complications are probably tracking pretty well here because you might, I mean, you know, there are a, a lot of potential significant diplomatic consequences to going out and messing with Things in you know uh, in uh, in uh, all sorts of countries without ever really I, uh, I don't remember uh, Iran suffering serious diplomatic consequences for putting the damn malware on everybody's machines. Well, I mean, the, Iran suffers serious dif- diplomatic consequences, sort of 
Well, yeah, I don't mean they get well, okay. All right. <laughs> well, uh, 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 China put uh, malware on everybody who visited Baidu for a while, at least 2% of everybody mm-hmm. who visited Baidu. I don't, I don't see a lot of diplomatic consequences there. Uh, well, uh, y- you know, so that, that I mean, it, it is not a legal argument that you're making. No, <laughs> a, no, that's right. I, I, a, I, I, we, on the policy side, I, the, I, I'm comfortable we win that argument. The question is, are, are the lawyers going to say, yeah, you won the policy argument, but you can't beat the legal argument? Is there a legal argument against uh, against doing that? Well, it, you know, if, if you are um, – countries have a responsibility to, uh, to not uh, – to um, – not allow dangerous activity to come from their country uh, and, uh, and dangerous and harmful activity. So uh, um, arguably you could, uh, particularly if there's an ongoing uh, uh, ongoing attack that rises to the level of something that you would address militarily, um, uh, you you could, you know, the, the law of countermeasures might apply there. Um, it would I, have to be something that you would address militarily? Well, as a, as a, uh, yeah, I mean, as a, uh, how are you, how are you, I mean, you, well, you're, as you're, a matter you're, of. You're, you're, you're going in and you're changing the code on, on, on computers in 50 countries. Uh, that's a big deal. Somebody, some other country did it in order to attack you. Um, uh, so, uh, the problem didn't start with you. But if you want to stop the attacks, you kind of have to do that. Um, do you really have to say this is a military problem? Well, how, I mean, as a, I mean, it, not as a legal matter. I mean, it, it would, if it's a threat, you know, there, it's not that there's some standard as a legal matter, but we do not, uh, particularly in this area, use our military for every, everything that we, uh, everything that. So I, 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 what I'm thinking about is, it, it, We've been attacked in cyberspace. We're responding in cyberspace precisely to neutralize the threat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I guess my question is, um, would we be better off if we said, no, no, we're not calling it an armed attack. We're not using force. We're just we're just stopping the attack by going in and changing the code and computers in 50 countries. Uh, or do you need some international law justification for that, uh, for doing that, uh, that only the law of armed conflict provides? Well, in that case, if, assuming it's not an armed attack, um, it wouldn't be, it would be um, the law of countermeasures. But there are, uh, you know, the, it, there is, you know, there's doctrine of proportionality. You ha- your response has to be proportionate. It sort of depends on the facts. What you're, the, what you are raising isn't, Impossible as a legal matter, but it really would depend on the facts, and it would also depend on how many, you know, how, what are the other, uh, you know, what are the other options? Are you getting there first, or is it, uh, you know, sort of a last resort? Is it, um, and and what have your interactions? What is your understanding of what the countries are willing to do themselves? Yes, uh, if you have time to ask them. Uh, um, very interesting. I have to say, it, it doesn't sound as though the lawyers are really adding value to this discussion in the sense they are they are making concrete the lack of certainty about all these topics and raising a bunch of issues that uh, you might want to think about but which uh, disguising them as as actual legal questions well seems I, don't, a I didn't dubious. I certainly didn't mean to give that impression I mean I think that the complication in this area is as I said it is really developing and uh, and there are guidelines I'm certain there are um, there are legal restrictions um, but how exactly you know, we we will define a lot of the terms, like you you know, a lot of the you know, use of force, armed attack, um, sovereignty, etc., is a legal and policy matter. How how do we decide to you know define that? Is um, is it sort of you know mixed legal and policy matter? And we are working at it on it. And my guess is they're uh, you know a good deal farther along than they were when I was there. Um, in defining these, but you need, you, you know, you need facts. You need, you can't do this, or it's very, very difficult to do it in the abstract. And so, so where it's in its infancy. So, uh, last this question. Um, tell me, sitting around the table, you're having this argument about whether it's uh, whether use of force is justified, whether neutrality is being invaded, whether this is countermeasures uh, or force. Uh, um, uh, who who speaks up? 
And where do they stand? I assume there's somebody there from the legal advisor's office at the State Department. There's somebody from DOD at uh, uh, general counsel's office. Uh, um, there's probably somebody there from CIA general counsel. Uh, 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 am I missing somebody? Uh, uh, OLC. The FBI. Or justice, uh, justice. OLC, yeah, justice. Yes. Um, and, um, yeah, you said DOD, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Uh, everyone speaks up um, there. Uh, and one thing we actually didn't mention, but just to throw out there is, you know, uh, uh, you know, when if you decide you want to respond, there's still the question of who should do it under what authority do you want to do it right. under um, military or uh, or uh, covert action authority. Um, and, you know, that, you know, so the, that might affect, the, you know, the, the views and the um, input from uh, the lawyers you're talking about. So what yeah, so presumably the CIA won't do something that it thinks violates the law, and same for DOD. So mm-hmm. if you assign it to them, their weight, their their views carry more weight about what they can legally do, or at least what they can't do. Right, and uh, yes, uh, exactly. And so uh, you know that if it's going to be if it's going to be pursued as a, a, a covert action, you know if something is going to be pursued as a covert action, the CIA and the uh, DNI's office. We'll have more to say about it, um, but still, certainly, state uh, all the lawyers meet to discuss uh, legal issues on covert actions as well. So, uh, state OLC, etc. Um, uh, and you know, um, I've been trying to think about who would come out what way, and it, it's not. It's you know, you've got um, uh, DoD has a very strong uh, background, long background in the law of armed conflict. They've done a lot of work on this, uh, as does the State Department. Um, and, uh, you know, they on most issues that, you know, there's a there's a difference in kind of uh, on many issues. There's a difference um, um, between them in interpretation. My experience, and I know it sounds very Pollyanna, is, you know, the that you sort of in the in the lawyers group process, um, you work through these issues and you develop a, a, a consensus view um, as things come up, and there's not a lot of screaming and, and fighting. Um, and who breaks the ties? OLC or NSC legal advisor? Yeah, well, not the NSC legal advisor. Uh, okay. um, the uh, you know the, the who breaks the ties on anything that has to do with a domestic authority? It's OLC on the uh, Justice Department. Only domestic. Um, well, in, in international, if it's purely international, the State Department, ten, you know, tends to have a, a greater a voice on those things, um, right. on, on international. And that kind of, you know, changes from, uh, has changed at times from uh, administration to administration, uh, how much voice OLC has on uh, on purely international law issues. But there's a lot, you know, it's greatly mixed international law and domestic here. So OLC you know, has, uh, has the, the, uh, usually breaks the ties on these, on these issues and, uh, or, obviously, OLC's boss. Kind of pretty much binding. That's right. Um, OLC's boss is the Attorney General and, um, the President, uh, can, if there are, are, you know, there is there, if there continues to be a tie or if there's dispute about an OLC, uh, Justice Department view, it would be the president, certainly not the NSC legal advisor or anyone below, uh, anyone on the White House staff, but the president who could make the final decision. Well, helps to have the president who's a lawyer, I guess. Uh, okay, uh, at least for that purpose. <laughs> uh, uh, the further I say not. Um, okay, uh, thank you so much. Uh, oh, thank we, you. We usually ask our guests if they've got any uh, uh, upcoming events they want to publicize. So. No, I have a really great vacation I'm about to take, but oh, I don't right. really feel going? a need to uh, to publicize that. So, <laughs> oh, no, damn, okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, well. I will say one other thing, just on the Sony, um, mm-hmm. my uh, just a personal connection. My brother works at Sony, and he is the uh, he. I don't remember his exact title, but he basically runs their digital marketing, content, and technology operations. And I just uh, remember talking to him right around Thanksgiving last year, and he was just. I mean, obviously, it's had massive effect on him. And he was like, "Mary, I had to fax something today." Yeah. <laughs> so have, have, you, have you gone to check to see whether your name appears in the WikiLeaks? Uh, I have not. Database? I have not. I'm sure his it's, does. It's but the I, equivalent of yeah. googling yourself. Yeah. You, you can't miss it. Uh, 
Uh, all right, Jason, any uh, uh, events coming up? Um, nothing, no speeches or anything to plug, but on Wednesday I'm, I'm going to participate in a roundtable that the Criminal Division is hosting on cybersecurity and data breach issues. Uh, it's being run by my old folks at CSIPS, John Lynch, and the AAG Leslie Caldwell will be there, as well as Michael Daniel and uh, yeah. John Carlin. So we'll report on that next week. Okay. I, I predict uh, encryption will come up. Uh, uh, Michael, any uh, speeches you want to talk about? Uh, not until our Lawfare uh, Beer Summit, which is, what, May 7th, I believe. That's right. Uh, uh, and... Uh, 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 We've got people here. Kara, are we going to uh, put that on Periscope or uh, Meerkat or uh, do anything live? No. No, we're not going to do that live. <laughs> uh, if you don't pay the 20 bucks and come, you will not see what we look like and you will not be disappointed. Um, okay. As a reminder, the Cyber Law Podcast is open to feedback. Uh, be sure to send your uh, thoughts about uh Topics we had to cover to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com or give us a call at 202-862-5785. This has been episode 64 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Next week we're going to have Bruce Schneier. Uh, I will be tougher on him than on Mary DeRosa, I'm sure. Uh, he's a cryptographer, computer security guru, privacy specialist, and uh, writer, the author of uh, Data and Goliath, uh, which I've now finished. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, have some thoughts about, uh, which we'll share to- uh, next week. Uh, uh, and then, as uh, was said, May 7, we're doing the Beer Summit. <coughs> That's at 1626 North Capitol Street at the Washington Firehouse. And then May 21, uh, we're really going walkabout. Uh, we'll be at Issa Nova's chapter meeting in McLean, Virginia, from 5.30 to 8 p.m. By then, we will have learned to use Meerkat, uh, I'm sure. Uh, we hope that you'll join us as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.